So we finally made it to Zman Simchaseinu, Or Hashem, the season of our joy. And everyone knows the Alter Rebbe's famous teaching that Zman Simchaseinu, in the plural, time of our joy, the plural, the Alter Rebbe says is referring to the joy of the Jewish people and the joy of God. Zman Simchaseinu, the time of our Simcha, it's the season of our joy, who's ours in the plural, us the Jewish people and Hashem. And the Alter says that that means that the Simcha of Sukkot is a two-way joy, two directions, as opposed to most streets here in Jerusalem that are one way. It's a two-way, a two-way Simcha. The Alter brings two Psukim from Tehillim, Yismach Yisrael Ba'isov, Yisrael will take joy in their Creator, and Yismach Hashem Ba'isov, Hashem takes joy in His creation. So it's a two, Zman Simchasein, Sukkis is the time where we take joy in each other. The Simcha, the joy of Sukkis, is, is the joy in each other. Yismach Hashem B'maisav, God's joy in us. He takes pleasure, He takes joy from us. And Yismach Yisrael B'aisav, we take joy from God. And you all, that's the Alter Rebbe's teaching. And you all understand that if the Alter Rebbe is telling us that it's a two-way simcha, that it's a simultaneous two-way joy, that we take joy in God and God takes joy in us, that means that the reason of the joy is the same. If the Alter Rebbe is saying, Zman Simchaseinu, it's our joy, we take joy in each other. That means that really it's the same, the mahus, the essence of what the joy is all about is the same. What God is taking joy in us and we take joy, we take pleasure in God, it's the same. It's just two different directions. So I want to learn with you tonight, what, what is the Simcha? You could go into a day like Sukkot, you know, the Rebbe spoke about that, uh, you know, the, all the, the years in Crown Heights, there was dancing every night of Sukkot, like by all of Klal Yisrael, but the difference is that the Rebbe was adamant that before they went to dance, he would first say a Sikha. So, you know, everyone else already started partying. As soon as Maiv was finished, everyone was Beishweva. The Rebbe would say a Sikha, sometimes for an hour and two hours. I mean, people are all revved up with no place to go. Everyone's all, you know, set to go dancing. And the Rebbe's on a Sikha. You have to stand and listen to the Rebbe for an hour, for two hours. And the Rebbe explained why. Because the whole idea is that you could dance just with the feet. But that's not a real dancing. A dancing has to be with the soul, with the head, with the mind, with the heart. The feet are just the vehicle. The feet are just the conveyor belt of the rest. And to be able to dance, to be able to take real joy, we have to know what it is we're, in what it is we're taking real joy. So therefore to discuss tonight, what is this man Simchaseinu? What are we so happy about? We're happy about God. God is happy about us. What are we all so happy about? Especially, you know, you come after Yom Kippur and there was a lot of introspection in Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. There was a lot of uh, home cleaning, spring cleaning, fall cleaning, introspection. And a lot of us sometimes, you know, we went to Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and love dafka, not all of us are so happy with everything that we found. You know, when you clean out the attic, you find a lot of old junk. So what's it to be so happy about? Okay, we did tshuva again. Say that. We did tshuva. Starting again. Mitzvah this year will be better. But what if I don't feel it, man? What am I so happy about? My Yom Kippur didn't go so well. So, it wasn't such a great Yom Kippur. What if, what, if, what if I don't feel like, what am I supposed to be happy about? So listen. So one of the most beautiful teachings about Sukkot, which we've learned in the past in previous years, spoken about, different mahalach, how to understand it. I try for you to mention it because it's an unbelievable idea from the Mittler Rebbe. 
The Mittal Rebbe, second Rebbe of Lubavitch, the Mittal Rebbe explains why is the Sukkah, why is Sukkot in Tishrei? It's a famous question. Why is Sukkot in Tishrei? We know the Sukkah is in remembrance, is in memory, is, a, is, is remembering the Manyedu Derasechem that in the Midbar, in the desert, for 40 years, Hashem sat us in His clouds of glory. That was the whole year. Why is Sukkot, that we're remembering that Hashem sat us in the clouds of glory in the desert, Tishrei? Pesach is in Nisan, the 15th of Nisan, that's the day we left Egypt. Shavuos is the 6th of Sivan, the day we got the Torah. The 15th of Tishrei. What, is, what does Sukkot have to do with anything? What does it have to do with anything? How does Tishrei come into play? We sat in the Sukkot, the, the whole year we sat, for the whole 40 years we were in the, in the, in the, in the Sukkot, in the clouds of glory. Rather, what will you say that God doesn't want to, you know, to live in a... God knows that there are some Hungarian Jews and He wouldn't want them to have to live in a sukkah the whole year. It would be a little inconvenient to hang up chandeliers in the schach. Say that, so you could, you know, so let Him make it in Nisan. You know, kill two birds with one stone. We'll eat the matzah in the sukkah. So the Mittler Rebbe explains this in carefully. The Mittler Rebbe explains... The schach of the sukkah, which you know halachically have dinim, have halachot of kedusha. There are halachis, what you're allowed to do with the schach of the sukkah even after sukkahs. You know, let's throw it out in the garbage. The holiness of the schach of the sukkah, says the Mittler Rebbe, is that Yom Kippur, the pinnacle of Yom Kippur, is when the Kayan Godel, as we learned about last week, would go into the Kaidash HaKadoshim and bring the incense, bring the Keturis in the Kaidash Kadoshim, the incense in the Holy of Holies, and the cloud of smoke of the incense would rise up, and the Torah says, Ki be'onon e'ro'e al ha'kapoires. God says, I will be revealed on that cloud of smoke, on the kapoires. What's the kapoires? The covering of the ark where the cherubs were. Ki be'onon, on the cloud of smoke, e'rola kapoires. And says the Mittler Rebbe, that cloud of smoke of the kapoires is mysteriously transformed and becomes the schach of the sukkahs of all the Jews. That's what the Mittler Rebbe says. That Ananaktoiris, which we had this year also, we spoke about last week on Hashama Parms by saying over the Avoid Vikoyangodl, we had everything. That cloud of smoke becomes the schach of the sukkah. So it means that the schach of the sukkah is, why is it in Tishrei? Why is it four days after, five days after Yom Kippur? Because it is that cloud of Ktoiris in the Holy of Holies. What does that mean? What's the connection between the two? As I said, we spoke about this in the past. But I thought of an idea recently, a couple of weeks ago, that I think might be another way of understanding what the Mitra Rebbe is saying. What does he, what does he mean that it's that the Ananak Torah, that becomes the Schach of the Sukh. So in order to understand what the Mitra Rebbe says, I think could be explained by a Mimer of the Rebbe. It's a Mimer the Rebbe said in 1954, Tavshin Yudalit, before anyone in this room was born. And it's actually based on a mimer of the Mittler Rebbe also. Everyone knows what's the halacha for a sukkah to be kosher. What's the halacha in order for a sukkah to be kosher? How much schach? What's the shear, the measurement? How much schach do you have to have? 
So the Mishnah says, the halacha is, Sukkah shechamasa, meruba mitzilasa psula. If there's more sun on the floor of the sukkah, then shade, then the shadow from the schach, puzzle. It's not kosher. What makes a sukkah kosher? Sukkah is on the name of the schach. And what is the measurement that you should know that there's enough schach? There has to be more tzel than chama. There has to be more shade than sun. That makes a sukkah kosher. And ask the Mitra Rebbe a very obvious question. What's the mila of tzel? What possibly could the Torah be teaching us? That for a sukkah to be kosher, there has to be more shade, more shadows, more darkness than sunlight. That's what makes a sukkah kosher. For seven days, the Torah is teaching us, go out of the sun, run away from the sunlight, go into the shade, go into the shadows, go into that darkness. That's what makes a sukkah kosher. Why? Elama. The answer is very obvious. Because we said the sukkah is in remembrance of what? The clouds of glory. No. So the question is the same question. Why is God coming to us in a cloud? You know, it's an oxymoron. Anone hakovid, clouds of glory. Covid glory is a very high level. Cloud is darkness. Why is God coming in a cloud? And what else did we learn that on Yom Kippur, that holiest of moments of the year, when God comes down in a way that He doesn't any other point of the year, in what does He come down? In what does He appear on the kapiris, on the, ark, on the cover of the ark? In what? Ki be'onon, in smoke, in shade, in clouds, in smoke. Why is God appearing to us? Why is He coming to us all the time with these gloomy, gloomy things in nature? These things that obscure and darken and conceal. Clouds and smoke and shade. Why does it come like in a rainbow, like a leprechaun or something? What's wrong with a rainbow? You know, a shooting star. You know, wouldn't you like to sing on a, swing on a star or something? You know, come, you know, swinging on a star. What's with the, the clouds and darkness and, and, and shade? It's all the darkness over here. So this... You know that to live with God, to live with God, I'm not, I'm not talking about being an Orthodox Jew. It's not, not, it's not that's, you know, that'll leave you for halachic classes. To live with God means to be constantly living in the presence of the sublime. To always be gazing and having your eyes on a horizon that completely transcends any reality that you could possibly be aware of. It means to be living in the depth, in the words of one great Jew, the depth of the unutterable, in the presence of which all poets, songwriters, saints, and philosophers live. To be able to live in such a way of being comfortable living in the presence of a mystery, of something that's completely beyond you, completely ethereal, completely foreign to you, not buying into what they try to tell you today in today's culture, that reality is something that you could write on a piece of paper. You know that even in human relationships it's like that. Even in human relationships everyone knows sensitive people, not everyone, sensitive people 
deep people, real people know that the most intrinsic and essential parts of relationships can't be expressed in words. In real relationships, it's those moments that you see, look at that person that you love and realize that I can't speak to that person. I can't. The words can't be said over here. That, those are those moments when the relationship is the most real. And so it is with all of reality. I'm going to quote you from, from Heschel. It says, To attempt to convey what we cannot see and cannot say is the everlasting theme of mankind's unfinished symphony. Those people that are always striving just to be able to live with what you could feel and touch and see and taste and define and do experiments with, those are shallow people. Those are not truly religious people. They might be orthodox and they'll go straight to Gan Eden, 100%. But you know that Chassidus is all about being a deep person. Chassidus is the poetry of Judaism. And poetry means being able to understand that what I see, not only is not just without what I get, but it's nothing near what reality really is. It's a very courageous thing to be able to take that step. To be able to go out of the world that I see and live in a plane always focused on something that I know that my mind can't grasp. Which is why Chassidus is so into nigunim. That's what songs are all about. That's what songs are all about. Why when you sing a nigun, you sing it again and again and again. Real people could sing a nigun a whole night. You don't have to change, you know, today you have these melodies, you know, on every tape, you know, me, you know, Hasidic melody, every one and a half minutes is a new niggin. Like a jukebox of melody. That's not, that's not a niggin. A niggin means you can sing the same niggin all night because a niggin is not about understanding something. It's about taking off. It's about going up. It's about leaving the reality that you live with all the time. And I need to recommend you, this book was recently translated, Sex from Rav Salavechik. It was actually, until now... It's called Bikashta Misham. Until now, in the, in the Hebrew version of Halachic Man, it was in the back. It's called Bikashta Misham. Many, many years ago, I'm talking about, about 19 years ago, I fell in love with it when it was in Hebrew. And it was just translated in English. In English, it's called From There You Shall Seek. And with Salvechik here, it's a beautiful book. And essentially, what he elaborates here is that that's essentially what all of Shir Shirim is about. The Holy of Holies song, the holiest song of all, Shir Shirim, the Song of Songs is this drama of these, these two lovers that keep seeking each other and being elusive from each other. This constant two-step dance of knocking on each other's doors and running away. Salvechik writes a beautiful thing. He says, there are moments of inspiration that people hear the sound of the Lord moving about in the garden of being. But these moments are fleeting and quickly pass. The echo fades away and is swallowed up, swallowed up in the expanse of the infinite. The love-stricken being searches for her lover but doesn't find him because the restrictions of human cognitive ability doesn't allow the mystery of God to enter. And that's what it means to have a relationship with God by definition. The first mes message of the schach, of the cloud, of the shade of the schach, of the cloud of the smoke, allow yourself 
to live in the mystery. Allow yourself not to know what's going on. You know, the Zohar, the Holy Zohar, the Zohar HaKadosh, the Holy Zohar, which is that ultimate text which is revealing the secrets of God. So you would think that the Zohar, which is giving it all away, telling the secrets of God, would begin with words that will be telling us that now we're going to know everything, right? Here's the secret. Abshleim Kalabach used to say that the real secrets are those that even after everyone knows them, they remain secretive. So I want to read to you the very first lines of the Zohar. The very first lines of the Zohar Kaddish. The opening lines of the, the book that's going to reveal God. God revealed. God exposed. Listen to how the Zohar begins. Rebbe Lazar opened his discourse with the text from Isaiah. Lift up your eyes to heaven and see who created these. Me, Bara'ela. See who created these. What does that seem to say? That if I lift up my eyes to heaven, what shall I see? The one who created everything, yeah? The Zohar says, no. You lift up your eyes to heaven and you'll see who? Me. You'll see the question, me. Who? Listen. Says the Zohar. Lift up your eyes on high. To which place? To that place, place which all eyes are turned. Petach enayim. The place that all eyes are opened. By doing so you will know that it is the mysterious ancient one whose essence can be sought but not found that created these. To wit, me, who? The same one that is said upon in Deuteronomy, me, from the extremity of heaven. Because everything is in his power and because he is ever to be sought, though mysterious and unrevealable, since further we cannot inquire. This is the Zohar. That extremity of heaven is called me, who? But there is another lower extremity which is called Ma. What? And the difference between the two is this. The first is the real subject of inquiry, but after a man, by means of inquiry and reflection, has reached the utmost limit of knowledge, he stops at Ma. What? As if to say, What knowest thou? What do you know? What have thou searchings achieved? Everything is as baffling as at the beginning. That's the Zohar. That's how the Zohar begins. Everything, no matter how much you search, it will always remain as baffling at the beginning. And I don't need to tell you that all the books of the prophets are full. These men that saw God all the time, a theme over and over again, what are the prophets telling us all the time? That our minds can't understand, that we can't know, that God is above and beyond. what Barth called the Holy Other, what Otto calls the Mysterium Tremendum, the m Tremendous Mystery, Radical Amazement. Plato wrote that the beginning of all philosophy begins with a sense of wonder. And a great Jew writes, a whole, has a whole book about this, that awareness of the divine also begins with a sense of wonder. 
And as civilization proceeds, the danger inherent in today's society is that man, not that man is not going to seek the creator of the world, but man is going to stop having a sense of wonder, of mystery, like a child. You know that tzaddikim, there's something childlike about tzaddikim. The Rebbe all the time spoke about, what, what was the phrase that he would say all the time? Ani I pray like a baby. Like a baby, to be like a child. A child doesn't lose a sense of wonder. It could drive you up a wall. You know, you're in the middle of doing something, in the middle of shopping. You know, and, and your little child stops you and says, you know, look, points at you know, the, the, the escalator. And says, look, an escalator. You say, you know, you were here last week. He doesn't bother him. Look, an escalator. He's all excited. You know, and then he sees, you know, a, you know, a little a, a plant. And he starts asking you, tell me, why is this plant, you know, different from all other plants? You know, you're saying you want in the middle of shopping. A child doesn't care. A child is curious. He wants to know. And a tzaddik is a person that doesn't give up on that curiosity. That's not, that's not afraid to live with that sense of mystery and curiosity. What we lack most is not a will to believe, it's a willingness to live with the sense of wonder of not knowing everything. And I don't need to tell you, I'm sure you all know, in which, in Judaism, in Chassidus, which school of thought is most adamant about this? The necessity of remaining simple, new, Breslov. This is what Rav Nachman was all about. Rav Nachman, if any message he had to us, it is the difference between the sophisticated and the simpleton. If you ever read Rav Nachman's stories, it's a beautiful thing. One of the beautiful things to read. Rav Nachman has a whole story about the sophisticated and the simpleton. It speaks that Yaakov Avinu was already called an Ishtam, a simple person. You know, Rav Nachman doesn't hold any, no holds bar. Rav Nachman right away writes in the Kutim Maran, he, in the 19th Torah, in the second part, he says, Hapilosof hu amolek. That's how he begins. You know, you know, he's a, a philosopher is a molek. The one that seems that wants to understand everything in the mind. Now I'm not saying obviously Chabad would not necessarily agree with the extremity. But the idea is, that, the idea is a true idea. One that needs everything to be understood with the mind is a molek. And therefore says Rav Nachman, when the Jewish people were battling a molek, what did Moshe Rabbeinu do? Lift up his hands to heaven. Lift up his hands. Look up. Stop looking at the reality in front of you. Feel that there's something that's above you. And what does the Torah say? No. Vayehi yodav emuna. Vayehi yodav emuna. His hands were teaching faith. That's the emuna pshuta. The simple faith that the Baal Shem Tov said that after everything that he perceived, and you can rest assured that all of us sitting here after 80 years, we won't perceive what the Baal Shem Tov perceived in one day. And the Baal Shem Tov said that after, 80, after everything that he perceived, he believes like a child. He wasn't afraid to remain believing like a child. He wasn't embarrassed about it. He didn't feel that you need workshops about it. It always, in my life, one of the sentences that strikes me the most, to this day, I'm, I'm talking about already from over 20 years, but to this day, the Ramban, the Ramban writes as an introduction to Chumash, that after everything he learned, he feels in the palace of Torah, 
that him in the palace of Torah is like the egg of a worm in the palace of a king. It's the Rambam. After everything he learned, he feels in the palace of Torah like the egg, not a worm, the egg of a worm in the palace of a king. The Schach is telling us, pick up your eyes, and see what? See what? Me! See who? Retain the me. Retain the feeling of who? Retain the childlike simplicity. Don't be ashamed of it. You know what today's problem is, I think, in my humble opinion? Today's generation, people my age and around my age, we all grew up with Star Trek. Remember, think about recently, I was just recently walking down the street a couple of weeks, and I was thinking about, you know, we grew up every, you know, thing with Star Trek, and what's the motto of Star Trek? This is, Star Trek was like the dawn of, of today's baby boomers, yeah? And what was the message of good old Kirk and Spock? <laughs> to boldly go where no man has gone before. Why wouldn't you, why? Why shouldn't you be afraid? Why shouldn't you be afraid to go where no man has gone before? Moses covered his face. Moses covered his face. He didn't feel comfortable going when no man has gone before. He didn't feel the need to put God in a box. He was very comfortable retaining the childlike simplicity covering his face and saying, Me, who? And that applies to everything in life that we feel that we have to put God in a box. There's a posuk in Eve, in Job. No one suffered like Job. And what was one of the most beautiful psukim, one of the most beautiful sentences that God said to Eve is, listen, it's in the 37th chapter. He says to him, Hearken to this, O Job. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of the divine. Hearken to this, O Job. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of the divine. Stand still and consider. What does that mean, stand still and consider? You know, you know when I thought about that? When did I end this? What I, I the stand still and consider. A couple of weeks ago, it was Saturday night. I was with a couple of, a few people sitting in this room. We were walking back in Mezhbuz, in the Ukraine. It's Motsu Shabbos. And I'm going to admit something, which might not, not be very politically correct, but out of the whole Shabbos in, the, in Mezhbuz, maybe it was the air, I'm not saying, could have been the air, definitely something special in the air over there. But what, what inspired me most from that whole Shabbos, I was walking here, with two guys here in the room, we were walking back from shul, and all of a sudden, you know, over there there's no lights in the street, there's no electricity, there's no street lights. And all of a sudden, we noticed the stars. Now, these days, you don't really see the stars anymore. When I was a kid, I mean, my mother used to take me out to Montauk, out in Long Island, all the way to Montauk, to be able to look at the stars. But these days, you don't really see the stars. And all of a sudden, we looked up and we saw, we saw what Abraham saw. We saw that mystery that Abraham looked at. How it all began. Stand still and consider. And we stood there. I, don't, I didn't look at the clock, but it was more than 45 minutes. We stood there looking up, just looking at the stars. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of the Lord. That's what the schach is saying. One of my students, one of the people I love most in the whole world, was sitting with him a couple of days ago. He's actually learning to become a brain surgeon. 
And he said to me, he said to me that nothing in the world is as beautiful. He can't imagine, this was his words, he can't imagine anything in the world He can't imagine anything in the world more beautiful than a human brain. He said, when I look at the human brain, I see God. And that's, that's chassidus. Stand still and consider. Look at the people that you love. God is eluding you. You don't feel Him. Look at the people that you love. Look at somebody that you love that God brought into your life. And He didn't have to. Just brought this person into your life and brings you so much joy and yes there are things that are negative but look at the person you love and see God that's the schach don't think that it has to be in a box stop putting God in a box you know there are people very interesting that you have people that are willing to admit openly that when it comes to human relationships they have doubts I don't know I'm not sure they don't want to feel confident they have doubts. Not sure how does a relationship work? How much of a relationship did there be? What should I feel? What should I feel? What should I not feel? They're willing to admit. In human relationships, I don't know. It's beyond me. I have doubts. But God, God, I want clarity. I want to understand how God works. I want to understand how God works. I want to put God in a neat little box. That's not being truly religious. The schach is telling you, live with the who? Live with the wonder. Stop trying to understand everything. It's not life like that. A life without a sense of wonder is not worth living. A life without a sense of something completely beyond you is not life. It's a science project. When your three-year-old or your five-year-old has to bring in a science project, then you could go in with your kid to class. But that's not life. You all know, I'm sure you know this anecdote. There's a woman, she's still alive today here in Israel. Her name is Geula Cohen. She's a right wing. Uh, she used to be a Haver Knesset for many years. She was in the Knesset. And she was by the Rebbe once in Yechidis. I think it was the first time I'm talking in the very early 60s. She was by the Rebbe in Yechidis for many hours. And when she got back to Israel, she wrote an article in the newspaper about Habikur Etzel Arabi Melubavitch. Her visit by the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And the headline of the article was Kimosafta Morakaitskena. Like an old Moroccan grandmother. That was the headline of the newspaper article. What does it mean like an old Moroccan grandmother? So she says that the thing that enchanted her the most about the Rebbe, that made her, shocked her, is that the Rebbe is sitting there and for hours and hours the Rebbe is speaking scientifically deeply sociology, psychology, about all the future of Israel, the demographics of Israel. Pushing for hours, she was speaking to him like a professor, like the greatest professors. And then she said, after hours of the Rebbe speaking like this genius professor, at the last few minutes of the conversation, he began speaking about Mashiach. About Mashiach. And he began speaking about Mashiach with such a simple faith like an old Moroccan grandmother. The same person that for the past few hours was speaking like a scientist, like a philosopher, was now speaking about Mashiach with the simple faith of an old Moroccan grandmother. 
We have to learn to cover our faces like Moshe. That's the first message of the Sach. That message, that message you don't need chassidus for. That message the prophets are telling us over and over again. But now we have to go deeper. And now let's learn what chassidus says about the darkness, the obscurity, the smoke and the cloud. It says in Tehillim, in chapter 18, Yoshes Choshech Sisroi. He makes darkness his hiding place. So what do we learn until now? Now you have to listen carefully because now we're going to go deep. We learned until now that on a simple level, what does it mean that he makes darkness his hiding place? On a simple level, that means that God is above us, that he transcends us that we can't comprehend him. He's beyond our horizon. He remains a mystery to us. That's what it means that darkness is his hiding place. Comes Chassidus and says a much deeper thing. Listen carefully. Chassidus says that there's something called in Kabbalah Makif HaRochik and Makif HaKarev. The word in Hebrew for something that transcends is called a makif, something that transcends. But Chassidus says there's makif hakarev, something that transcends but's closer to me, and makif harachik, a more distant transcendence. What does that mean? There's a closer transcendence and a distant transcendence. So listen. Chassidus says that's called helem. There's something that's concealed from me. But there's a concealment that means that from me it's concealed. But then there's a deeper concealment, what's called helem ha'atzmi, an essential concealment. Not that something is concealed from me, but rather it's something that does not lend itself to any revelation. We'll give a simple muscle. You have a student and his teacher. The teacher teaches the student a very deep idea, and the student gets it. But at the same time, and here you have to think, the student has received from his teacher the idea that the teacher taught. But at the same time, we all know what a Chazal teaches in the Gemara, what will happen after 40 years, what's going to happen. He understood, the student got what the teacher taught him. But what's going to happen after 40 years? Rashi brings it, no. And then the Parshas Kisavai, then in 40 years the student is going to understand what? What the teacher really meant. The depth of the teacher's teaching. But, listen carefully, even now, before the 40 years, when the student has received and understood what the teacher taught him, he already feels now that there's more here that I than what I grasped. There's more here than what hits the eye. There's something deeper here. In other words, the student feels that what I grasped internally is what I grasped according to my vessels. But I feel that what something transcends my vessels. I feel that my teacher's mind is, I could feel it now. If a student is perceptive, he could feel it now. He feels now that the teacher's mind is still beyond him. I haven't gotten the teacher's mind. 
I've only received a, a glow, a flow, a ray of the teacher. But I feel that there's something deeper. That's what's going to cause him to strive for 40 years to be oimid al-das rabbi, to be able to understand what the teacher really says. Because already now I feel that there's more here. So therefore the student already feels that what? There's a makif. That there's something above. There's something mysterious. There's something a radical amazement. Something above me. I feel it now. I can feel that. That's what we've been talking about until now. But then Chesidah says, that's makif hakarev. That is something transcendent, but it's something that transcends you, but is still near to you. You feel that there's something more here. But then, there's not the teacher's mind that transcends you. There's the teacher himself. Etzem hamashpia. Not the teacher's mind. You feel that the teacher's mind transcends you. But then there's something that not just that you didn't grasp. There's that part of the teacher, the very essence of the teacher, that the teacher didn't try to convey. Because it can't be conveyed. Because it's his essence. And the essence can't be conveyed. That's the makif harochik. You're all familiar with Bossi Lagani. The previous Rebbe's the Hasidic discourse is Bossi Lagani. I've come to my garden. And over there, the Friedrich Rebbe brings from the Mittler Rebbe the famous marshal about what the revelation of Mashiach is going to be. What's the famous marshal? The revelation of what Mashiach is going to be and what even now we, we have a taste of. What's the marshal? The Mittler Rebbe says a marshal of a king. A king was being threatened with extinction, with being defeated. And in order for the king to win the war, what does he do? Bizbuz ha'oitzras, he gives out the treasures. He gives out all the treasures. And the Mitra Rebbe says, the words of the Mitra Rebbe, he gives those treasures, the king gives out to win the war, he gives those treasures, the oitzar ha'elyon, those treasures that no one has ever seen, even the king himself never saw them. That's the words of the Mitra Rebbe. The king squanders that treasure which the king himself has never seen. Now what does that mean vis-a-vis -vis God? What does that mean vis-a-vis -vis God? What's that treasure of God that God has never seen? That has not been revealed to God? You know what it is? It's the very essence of what God is. It's the etzem hamashpia. The essence of what God is, is above revelation. The idea of the infinite light of God, the in orin sof, the infinite light of God, the infinite revelation of God, is a creation, just like a frog. The essence of God is beyond the concept, just like He's beyond finitude, He's beyond infinity. Just like He's beyond small, He's beyond big. Just like He's beyond concealment, He's beyond revelation. All these things are terms that were created. God in His essence is not revealed even, even to Himself. Because the, conce the concept of revelation is something that He made. And therefore, listen carefully, what does that mean? 
the secret of Mashiach, the Oitzer Ha'elyon is, there are three different ways you could come to love God. In the language of Chassidus, meditate on Mamale Kol Alman, meditate on Sevav Kol Alman, or meditate on Atzmus, which means to meditate on the finite light of God that dwells within the world, to meditate on Sevav Kol Alman, the infinite light of God, or to meditate on God's essence. What's the difference? You could love God for the beauty that you see in the world. You see the mountains and the flowers and the people around you and, and, and pizza and ice cream and all sorts of good things you see in the world and the greatness of God and you come to love God that's what the Rambam says the Rambam writes you look at the beauty of creation you see the majesty of creation you stand still and consider the wondrous works of the Lord and you come to love God that's loving God's finite revelation the, the light His finite light what we call the world what we call the universe that we experience is that finite light of God that He revealed to us. And I could come to love that aspect of God. But then I could meditate how all the world and all the worlds are only a faint drop of God's light and His infinite light transcends all that and kula and everything before God is like a drop from the ocean and you come to a feeling of wanting to be part of that mystery you want to connect to that infinite light of Hashem <clears throat> that's loving God's infinity. But you know that that's not real love. You all know that the real love is when you love somebody's essence. Not for what they are, not even for what they're not. You just love their essence. Like the Alter Rebbe said to God, I don't want your Elam Haba, I don't want your Ganeiden. Ich will mir nitas I just want you. And you all understand, those of you that are married will understand what I mean, that that's why in Judaism, in a chassan, in a kala, the union is in darkness. Because the ultimate connection is in darkness, is when I'm not loving you for what you are. I'm not loving you because of aspects about you. I love your essence and I want to connect to your essence. That's Mashiach, when we'll come to love God for God. Not because he, He's not infinite, He's not finite. That level of His essence that's above any, not just any definition, any negative attribute. He's not infinite, just God. Like the Chassan and Kala, in complete darkness. And you all remember that that was the lesson that God taught Eliyahu Hanavi, the end of the first book of Kings. Eliyahu Hanavi was on fire with love of God. I was zealous for God. He's on fire, he's zealous. He's upset that people are not loving God like he is. And so what lesson does God teach him? He takes him to the mountain and he puts him in the cleft of the mountain. And what, behold, what passes by Eliyahu Hanavi, a great stormy wind that breaks mountains. Hashem, God was not in the wind. And then passes a great earthquake. Hashem, God was not in the earthquake. And then passes a great fire. Great revelations, great feelings, great Yom Kippurs where I'm able to feel stuff the whole day. Hashem, God was not in the fire. And then what? What came then? Kol Mamadaka. Still silence. Kol Mamadaka. 
the sound of silence, and that's where God was. Now, who remembers? What was Elio Anavi's response? What did he do? What, is the, what does it say over there? Right after came this, that still sound silence. Vayolet ponov be'adartoi. He covered his face with his cloak. He went into darkness. And that's the secret why Shemona Esrei is quiet. Why this silence? Why this darkness? Because that's God wanting and loving God for what He really is. You all know in human relationships also, you love a person for who they really are, even with their faults. And I thought to myself, an idea, I actually think it's a pretty, good, pretty deep idea. I thought about it and it really struck me. <clears throat> you know there are those people <clears throat> that are afraid of silence? You know people like that? That are afraid to be quiet? And I'm not talking about people that are afraid to shut up. There are people like that also. <clears throat> but I'm not talking about just people that don't know how to shut up. The people that are afraid of silence, they need to either be talking or speaking to or have earphones in the ear or a cell phone in the ear. There has to be, or if they're sitting at home, they right away have to do something. They're afraid of silence. You know which people those are? Those that are uncomfortable with the essence of who they are. You'll see it every time. Those that are not confident enough to make peace with your essence. And to feel what the essence is saying is real. Those are the ones that are afraid of the silence. And you remember those moments in the father's vehicle. The father's vehicle called the sukkah. Our father gives us a vehicle for the sukkah. The sukkah is our father's vehicle where he allows us to have those moments that we could cherish in complete silence. Complete silence and complete darkness. That's the schach of the sukkah. The schach of the sukkah, not just like we learned before, that God is mysterious and He's above and He's transcendent. Not even that. The schach of the sukkah means that in a real relationship, communication is secondary. And a relationship with God to accept God for His essence and to love His essence. <clears throat> and those moments in the Father's vehicle called the sukkah, in our Father's vehicle called the sukkah, they might not last for a long time. But you have to cherish those moments when you're sitting in that shade of the sukkah to know their real love is love of essence. And that's the most beautiful thing that there is. And therefore you all understand <clears throat> why is sukkah... Well, let, me, let me say it properly. So if the sukkah, the message of the schach, is Yoshas Chayshech Sisroi, the sukkah is that vehicle that's allowing us to sit in the darkness of God, to come to love once again God's essence, not to love Him because He is the world, not to love Him because He's beyond the world, but to love God for who He is. Which aspect of the human personality could contain God's essence? Which aspect of the human personality could be a vessel for God's essence? No such thing. There is no part of the personality that could contain God's essence. And therefore you will know what aspect of our personality is the only one that allows us to connect to God's essence? No. Simcha. That's the secret of simcha.
The Rebbe Rashab explains in Samach to Samach, the Rebbe Rashab explains what it's brought down. That even though a mitzvah, all mitzvahs draw down God's essence. But what will reveal God's essence? The simcha shall mitzvah. Simcha, when we're besimcha, that allows the revelation of God's essence. Why? Because simcha is that aspect of a personality that takes away any compound, any form. Simcha, when a person is completely joyous, you're willing to hug anyone, you're willing to give anyone anything. A person that's completely besimcha, you know, your kid got engaged or something, you give everyone cigarettes, you give everyone money, there's no boundaries. You do anything. You're completely formless. You no longer have a tziur. It's a negation of form. And that's simcha. That's the simcha of the sukkah. <clears throat> but now we come to a hard part. So this message of the schach of the sukkah, the shadow and the clouds and the smoke, is that God in His essence, you don't love God for any reason. You love, you accept and you love God for His essence. But that has some price to pay for it. And now we come to the hard part. You all remember that Moshe Rabbeinu, the Gemara says, that Moshe Rabbeinu was shown Rabbi Akiva being tortured to death. And Moshe Rabbeinu Moses, that same Moses that covered his face, that was willing to accept that God is mysterious, that knew that God is transcendent. Listen carefully. He knew that God transcends me, what we learned earlier, that he's a makif. But he wasn't yet taught the message of essence. He covered his face because he was willing to accept and be humble that God is beyond me. That same Moshe asks, questions God as he sees Rabbi Akiva being tortured to death and he says to God, Zu Torah schara? Is this the reward for Torah? How does God respond? He responds like an Israeli taxi driver. Shtoik Shut up! That's how I decided. That's what it says. Shut up! That's how I decided. What does that mean? God is not an Israeli taxi driver. What does that mean? They say, shut up! So it arose. It arose in the thought before me. So this explains. Shtoik, be silent. Not because you can't understand Moshe. God says, because I don't understand. Because this is coming from a place of God's essence. Allah b'machshava lefanai, God says. Allah b'machshava lefanai. It arose beyond my thought. God's thought, logic, intellect, is the highest of the ten spherot. God's essence is before that. A place where God doesn't yet understand. Because there's no such thing as understanding. Because it's the essence. It's the secret of silence. And the secret of Mashiach, when Mashiach is going to come. It's not that all the questions are going to be answered. It's that we're going to learn to love the silence itself. We're going to get God's essence. They're not going to be answers. 
another person that I love very much just recently said to me, when it comes to all these issues, there are no good answers. No good answers. It's true. And there never will be. Because that's God's essence. There are no, it's a place that's above intellect. You're going to forgive me and humor me, but I want to share with you something that for me for many years was very difficult to deal with. And I hope, <laughs> I hope it's not going to be difficult for you to deal with also. I don't want to confuse anyone. But I've, I've made peace with it. And so the easy thing would be to hide it and not discuss it. <laughs> but that's not the type of silence that God is looking for. He's not looking for a silence that comes from running away. God is looking for the silence that comes from being able to look at the silence, look at God's obscurity in the eye, and love it. In all of world literature, one of the most famous scenes ever written was by Dostoevsky in his book, The Brothers Karamazov, the famous chapter called The Grand Inquisitor. And I remember as a youngin reading this and being very distraught. And I want to share it with you. I'm going to read to you a little. I accept God simply, but you must note this. If God exists and He really created the world, then as we all know, He created it according to the geometry of Euclid and the human mind, with the conception of only three dimensions of space. Yet there have been mathematicians and philosophers who, have, who doubt whether the whole universe or more speak more widely of the whole of being was only created in Euclid's geometry. They even dare to dream that two parallel lines, which according to Euclid can never meet on earth, may meet somewhere in space. I have come to the conclusion that since I can't understand even that, I can't expect to understand about God. I acknowledge humbly the Makif HaKorv. Most people are willing to do the Makif HaKorv. They're willing to acknowledge that God is above them. I acknowledge humbly that I have no faculty for settling such questions. I have a Euclidean earthly mind, and so how can I solve problems that are not of this world? And I advise you never to think about it either, especially about God, whether He exists or not. All such questions are utterly inappropriate for a mind created with an, an idea of only three dimensions. And so I accept God, and I'm glad to. Concept of an, a concept of an absolute, no problem. And what's more, I accept His wisdom, His purpose, which is completely beyond our knowledge. I believe in the underlying order and the meaning of life. I believe in the eternal harmony in which they say we shall one day be blended. Yet, would you believe it, in the final result, I don't accept this world of gods. Although I know it exists, I don't accept it at all. It's not that I don't accept God, you must understand. It's the world created by Him I don't and cannot accept. Let me make it plain. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. I believe that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a mirage. Like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. I believe that at the world's end, at the moment of eternal harmony, 
something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that has been shed. I believe that it will not only be possible to forgive, but to justify all that happened. But although all that may come to pass, I don't accept it. I won't accept it. Even if parallel lines do meet, and I see it myself, I will see it and say that they might have met, but I still don't accept it. He goes on to then begin explaining the suffering of humanity. The terrible suffering of humanity, especially the suffering of children. He gets very graphic with all sorts of scenes of educated parents that are known in the outside world of being, of being sophisticated and even holy, how they torture their children. <clears throat> gives an example of a little girl of seven years old was subjected to every possible torture by those cultivated parents. They beat her, kicked her for no reason till her body was one bruise. Then they went to greater refinements of cruelty. They shut her up all night in the bathroom, smothered her face with excrement. It was her mother, her mother who did all this. And that mother could sleep hearing the poor child's groans. Can you understand why a little creature who can't even understand what's being done to her should beat her little aching heart with her tiny fist in the dark, in the cold, and weeping heart, with a weeping heart, and meek, unresentful tears to dear, kind God to protect her? Do you understand that? Do you understand why God allows this infamy? He permits it? Without it, I am told, man could not have existed on earth, for he could not have known good and evil. But why should he know that diabolical good and evil if it costs so much? Why the whole world of knowledge is not worth that child's prayer to dear, kind God. I say nothing of the sufferings of grown-up people, but these little ones... And then he goes on to explain more and more of the suffering of children and the tears that they shed to dear, kind God, those tears that remain unanswered. I must have justice, or I will destroy myself. And not justice, I need truth. And not just some justice in some remote, infinite time and space, but here on earth. Justice that I can see myself. I have believed it, I want to see it. And if I am dead by then, let me rise again. For if it all happens without me, it will be too unfair. I want to see with my own eyes the lamb lie down with the lion and the victim rise up and embrace his murderer. I want to be around when everyone suddenly understands what it was all about. All the religions of the world are built on this longing and I am a believer. But, but then there are the children. And what am I to do with them? That's a question I can't answer. Listen, if all must suffer to pay for eternal harmony, what have children to do with it? Tell me, please. It's beyond all comprehension why they should suffer and why they should pay for this harmony. Why should they furnish the manure to enrich the soil for the harmony of the future? I understand, of course, what an upheaval the universe will be when everything in heaven and earth blends in one hymn of praise and everything that lives will cry out aloud to, to God. Thou art just, O Lord, for thy ways are revealed. When the mother will embrace the fiend who murdered her child in front of her eyes and all three, the mother, the child, and the murderer will cry out with tears, Thou art just, O Lord. Then, of course, the crown of knowledge will be reached 
and all will be made clear. But what troubles me is that I can't accept that harmony. And while I'm on earth, I hurry to take my measures. Because you see, perhaps it really may happen that I might live to see that moment. I will rise again to see it and I might cry aloud with the torturer looking at the mother embracing her child's murderer. And I myself might also say, Thou art just, O Lord. But I don't want to cry aloud then. While there is still time, I want to protect myself, and so I renounce that higher harmony altogether. It's not worth the tears of that one tortured child who beat herself on the breast with her little fist and prayed in the stinking outhouse, outhouse with her tears to the dear kind God. It's not worth it because those tears will remain unatoned for. What becomes of the harmony if there is hell? I don't want to forgive. I don't want to embrace. I don't want there to be more suffering. And if the sufferings of children go to swell the sums, to pay for the truth, I protest that that truth is not worth the price. I don't want the mother to embrace the impressor. She dare not forgive him. Let her not forgive herself. I don't want that harmony. And therefore, as long as I can, I give back the entrance ticket to God, and I'm honest man, and I say to God, God, I don't accept your world, and I don't accept the plan in your harmony. No? So what do we do with that? So I think... And I was troubled by those words of Dostoevsky for many, many years. Because at the end of the day, after everything that Torah teaches us, it doesn't seem to be a good answer. No good answers. So I think that that's why the sukkah, the shadow of the sukkah is called Tzila de Mehemnusa, the shade of faith. The ultimate act of faith is not to believe in God's existence that He created the world, that there's an absolute, that all could be proven logically. That's not the ultimate act of faith. The ultimate act of faith is hearing what God says to Moshe Bein about Rabbi Akiva, The ultimate act of faith is learning to trust God, that God wants to give us His essence, and when Mashiach comes, we're going to get His essence. There won't be answers but we're going to learn to love the silence and the darkness for whatever reason. The only way to reach God's essence is through darkness. With all due respect to Dostoevsky, he's right. There are no answers. But for whatever reason, and even though God could do anything, God could do anything. He needs to bring about that harmony. Let Him do it in a nice way. There's no explanation. It's just the state of affairs. But one thing we know for sure, we could trust God. If it could have been done another way, He would have done it another way. There's no logical, and there won't be a logical explanation. But learning to love the silence and the darkness of the sukkah means learning to love the one that you love, even with their faults. To love God, even with His faults, with darkness. And you will understand, those of you that were here last week, that this is a sort of a continuation of what I said or screamed last week. And this is not a contradiction. Because there's a difference between screaming at God about the future and demanding good 
and looking at the past. The future we have to scream out to God that we want revealed good. But when we look at the past and all the suffering and the humiliation and the pain, the message of the schach of the sukkah, entering the sukkah, the shadow of the sukkah, is entering, accepting God, that this is the way we're going to get God. And it's the only way. And it's the ultimate act of faith. I want to tell you a little anecdote that I had in my life. You know, Bechlal, I must admit, I have an advantage when it comes to this. And I know it's very difficult what I'm saying for a lot of people. Personally, on a personal level, I have an advantage. I grew up with a grandmother who spent a year in Auschwitz, who saw what God is capable of face to face. She looked at the schach of the sukkah in its most grotesque manner. And my grandfather, Zechariah Levracha, he would always tell me as I was growing up, he'd always say to me, he'd say, he'd say, the greatest miracle is not that we survived, the Germans. It's that we continue to believe afterwards. And I was Zoichai merited to grow up with such a grandmother that emuna vayihi yadav emuna, this ultimate faith, the tzila de memnusa, the shade of the faith of sukkah, that's the very fabric of what it means to be a Jew. It always has been. A Jew doesn't love God for reasons. A Jew doesn't love God because I'm looking for truth and justice and harmony. There's accepting the one that you love even with his faults. I want to tell you an anecdote. In my life, I was learning in the yeshiva, in the brisker yeshiva here in Yerushalayim. My magachir at the time was a Jew. His name, was Revel, his name is Rebel, Velvel Salavechik. And I was going through a very, very hard time. It's one of the more difficult times in my life. And he saw that I was very distraught. <laughs> you know, sometimes you, know, you, you, get, you get messages from places that you weren't expecting them. So I, you know, I took out all my books of chassidus and my books of philosophy and poetry and I was trying to console myself and it didn't work. Now you know, I need to make a little parenthetical uh, addition. You all know the famous uh, joke that Chassidim say, why does a Misnagid believe in God? Why does a Litvak believe in God? Because the Rambam says God exists and the Raiva doesn't argue. <laughs> Maimonides says God exists and the Raiva doesn't argue, so you know God exists. Now that's a joke, but this story that happened to me, listen to this story. I was crying for days. I was mamish oismensh. Yeah, it's very easy for me to be up here on lecture. <laughs> you know, but I know what it is to actually suffer. So he called me and I hadn't come to class for kind of come to Shear for a couple of days. And I didn't I didn't get too specific, but I told him I was going through a very hard time. Without an ounce of emotion. Absolutely no emotion. Without wincing. He looked at me with a straight face and he said, he like accusatory tone. There's a din. There's a halacha. They have to believe whatever God does is, for, is good. It's a halacha. You have to believe it. It's just like there's a halacha you have to put on tefillin. There's a halacha you have to shake a lulav. There's a halacha. There's a halacha. You have to believe that God, whatever God does is for good. And I... I could swear to you that in a second it helped. More than all the emotional poetic explanations. It's not din. It's Allah. With all due respect to Dostoevsky, the secret of Jewish survival for all the years, 
Throughout all the suffering the Jewish people have been through is Tzila de Memnusa, the shadow of faith, the shade of faith, the ultimate act of faith, learning to trust. Learning to trust in that it had to be this way. It couldn't be any other way. But now comes, I know it's late, Mamash another three minutes. But now comes the ultimate question. The ultimate question is, so where do I get this faith from? Where shall I get it from? If I don't have this faith, if I don't have this trust, if I don't have this acceptance, I'm still thinking like Dostoevsky. I'm not willing to take that leap of faith. The Yavayihi Yodavimuna. I'm not willing to enter the sukkah, the shadow of the sukkah, that vehicle of our Father, and hug and embrace the essence of God for who He is. I can't. Where shall I get it from? So listen. You all remember what it says in Tanya, chapter 46. Kemayim upon him upon him came levadim ala adam. As in water, face reflects face, so to the heart of one man to another man. The Alter Rebbe there explains how do we arouse love in our hearts for God by meditating on God's love for us. How could we come to accept and love God for His essence, for His darkness? You know how? What Tanya chapter 46 says. The answer is when we see God's unconditional love for us. And what's that? That's tshuva. That's Yom Kippur. What's the secret of tshuva? What do we just spend 26 hours saying to God on Yom Kippur? God, I know I'm not perfect. I don't think there's anyone that haughty that thinks that they're perfect. I'm not perfect. I sinned. I did bad stuff. Yom Kippur is that day that God loves us unconditionally and He forgives us. You know why He forgives us? Because He loves us unconditionally, because He loves our essence. And so Zman Simchaseinu, the day of our two-way joy, where we take joy in each other's essence. The cloud of smoke in the Holy of Holies becomes the schach of the sukkah. That means that the cloud of smoke of the atonement of Yom Kippur, that cloud where God revealed and He shows, comes to our essence and He loves us no matter what and He forgives us for who we are, that gives us the ability on sukkahs to enter the sukkah and love Him for whoever He is. To know that this is the only way we're going to be able to get to God's essence. That's the Zman Simchaseinu. The joy of one essence with another essence. Our love of Him that comes, that derives, that kedush of the schach comes from the smoke on Yom Kippur, which is the secret of tshuva, which is His unconditional love and acceptance of us. I want to just finish with a story. I've said this story before. I'm going to say it again because it's a very important story to go into sukkahs with. The story of the Holy Rebbeleviyatzik of Berdichev. One year there was no esrog to be found in all of Berdichev. And it was the day before Sukkot. And passing through the town of Berdichev was a very, all of a sudden a big wagon came. And a very wealthy man came into the town. He came to see the Berdichever, to get a bracha. 
He walks into the Bidichavar and the Bidichavar says to this wealthy man, where are you coming the day before Sukkot? So he says, there was no Esregim to be found in, this, in these parts, this part of the Ukraine. I took my carriage and I traveled for a whole week to find an Esrog. So the Bidichavar, you know, started drooling. It's like, you, you have an Esrog? He says, yes, the most beautiful you've ever seen. Bidichavar says, could I see it? Takes out his Esrog in all its glory. So the Bidichavar says to him, do me a favor. Stay here in Bedichur for Sukkis. So the guy says, what are you talking about? The Rebbe, you know, I love you. He wasn't the Chassid. I love you. You know, you're great. I give you stuff. I give you a nice, you know, money, whatever. But, you know, I have a wife. I have kids. I, I want to go home for Sukkis. So Bedichur starts cajoling him and pleading with him. He wants to be home for Sukkis. Finally, Bedichur says to him, I'll make a deal with you. An offer you can't refuse. If you stay in Bedichur for Sukkis, I'll give you half of my portion in the world to come. Now you're talking my language. <laughs> the rich man said, you got a deal. He sent a message home. I won't be coming home for Yomtiv. And he stayed in Bredicha for Sukkot. Comes the night of Sukkot, tomorrow night, the first night of Sukkot. And the custom was those days that, uh, you know, you go to shul and you'd be invited. And this wealthy man was sure that the Rebbe is going to invite him. He is the Rebbe's guest. He stayed in Berdichev to bring him an Esther. The Berdichev comes over to him, says to him, good yontiv, and walks out the shul. He's a little insulted. Okay, maybe, maybe the Rebbe wants that one of the wealthy men should invite me. I should have a better meal. And slowly he sees that everyone's walking by him, saying to him, good yontiv, and walking out the shul. So there's only a handful of people left. The wealthy guy runs over to somebody and says, excuse me, could I eat by you tonight in your sukkah? So the guy says, no, I'm sorry, my sukkah's full. No guests. He walks out. He starts getting indignant. What's going on over here? Got chutzpah. He goes over to another person and says, excuse me, can I join you in your sukkah for tonight's meal? Sorry, no, we don't have room. He runs out the shul, he runs to a sukkah, he knocks on the door, he walks in, he says, can I please come into your sukkah? They said, no, sorry, you can't come. He sees there's plenty of room. What do you mean, why not? Sorry you can't come. He loses his temper. He starts yelling and screaming. What kind of car is I'm here for the Yishu, all people to do Da'at Minim. Finally they had no choice. And he said to him that the Rebbe Blavitzik Berdichev told everyone in the town that nobody should invite you to the sukkah. Gets very upset, to say the least. He runs to Blavitzik Berdichev's sukkah. Blavitzik already has a cup of wine in his hands about to make Kiddush. He runs in and he says, Rebbe, what kind of business is this? I'm here to spend Yontif so that you could do Mitzvah Dal Minim. You told everyone not to invite me to the sukkah. So Blazer Bidichur says, don't worry. I told the Shamish, the sexton, the Gabbai, to set up for you in the shul a beautiful meal. A meal fit for kings. So the wealthy guy says, in the shul, it's sukkahs. It's the first night of sukkahs. I have to eat in the sukkah. So Bidichur says, why? You have half of my chelik and oilam haba. You have my half of my portion of the world to come. You don't have to eat in the sukkah ever again. You got it made in the shade. Forgive the, uh, you know, pun. You got it made in the shade. You have half of my portion of the world to come. You don't need a sukkah. So the guy says, what do you mean I don't need a sukkah? It's sukkahs. Bidichavah says, you never need to do another mitzvah in your life. You have half of a portion of my world to come. Go into the shul and eat as much as you like. You could eat treif if you'd like. <laughs> So the Jew thinks to himself, well, that's true. And he says, but, but, he says, but Rebbe, but it's Sukkot. I'm, I'm a Jew. I have to eat in the Sukkot. So Bedichur says to him, you know what, I'll make a deal with you. 
You want to eat in the sukkah tonight? One condition. You give me back the half of my world to come that you took from me, that I gave you. That's the condition. You could eat in the shul, you could do any of various you'd like, and you'll have half of my personal world to come. Or, you give me back the half of my personal world to come, and then you give in the sukkah. This Jew thinks to himself. And finally, he gives out a krecht. He sighs. Rebbe, you won. You win. I'm a Jew. A Jew eats in a sukkah. You win. Rebbeleivzik Bedichever started jumping up and down. No, you win. You win. You're going to have half of my portion of the world to come. You're going to have it. But I wanted to make sure that I had a worthy neighbor. <laughs> and you are a worthy neighbor. You win. A Jew knows that we don't connect to God so I could have a good life and that I could have a good shidduch and that I should feel inspiration and I should have the world to come. These are all the sun, the rays of the sun. Sukkah says to us, Get out of the sun, come into the shade. Come to God for His essence. Accept Him, trust Him for who He is. He loves us for who we are. And when we accept that essence and we say to God, we want your essence, then Mashiach will come because that's 